welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show, where this week we have to wonder why anybody, as much as I get state pride, but why anybody would want to wear a pendant in the shape of New Jersey. It is and I grew up in New Jersey. It's a thinker. What's even weirder is being asked why the pendant, you know, what state, what was it she asked? I know it's a state. I'm trying to figure out which one. It's a state of your wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there is no state that is also the shape of the Silverstone Racetrack. So let, let's now explain the scenario. Yes. Oh, you want me to? It's your story. <laughs> All right. So I was, um, I got a birthday gift from Michael that arrived over Thanksgiving weekend. And it is the silver, uh, Silverstone track in silver in a pendant. Yes, it is part of the Smith and Perry collection put out by Alyssa Smith Jewelers in uh, England. And um, it is similar to a necklace that Susie Perry from the BBC wore at Silverstone. And to say that I love it is an understatement. <laughs> So I was wearing it yesterday while I was checking out at Sur La Table, uh, purchasing, of all things, a splatter guard. And um, the woman behind the register looks at me and she says, I know it's a state. I'm just trying to figure out which one. And I'm trying to figure out what she's asking because I have no idea <laughs> what on me would look like a state and she goes is it new jersey and i'm like oh wait no it's a track it's a racetrack in england um and this woman next to her that also worked for sola tab looks like over and says yeah i'm from new jersey it's not new jersey it's the wrong direction <laughs> like it's also not the state and i've pulled up the outline of the state of new jersey I don't see it. I don't see any similarity whatsoever, except that, you know, it's roughly crescent-shaped. You know, it, it's barely there. If, if you're going to think kind of state-shaped, maybe California. But even that, it's a stretch. Yeah. You know, it's that whole, the two parts go into a very tight piece. There's no state that does that. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway. Um, so alas, I'm not wearing a pendant from the state of New Jersey. I'm wearing the Silverstone racetrack. Yes. So move into some race news. The race last news. race of the season. This is it. But we got had some stuff play out before we got to the race. First, we need to go back to Brazil and Felipe Massa's exclusion, where we thought the story was over. It's not over? Well, not really. William says it ain't over till we say it's over. But, I don't know. But they pulled their protest. They, they, they pulled the appeal, and actually Pat Simmons explained on what was going on here. For starters, he says, you know, he's absolutely convinced that if they did follow the appeal through, they would have won it. Um, he says that he remembers from his time at Renault when they went to appeal several times, and the amount of money they spent on these appeals was really significant. He said, more importantly, it was the amount of time spent. And this is all, you know, we knew. It was going to take a while. It was going to cost a lot of money. And that would have diverted them away from it. But like he says, they're, 
there really was no reason to do it. Um, although he does think it's important that they protect the, the reputation of Williams. The fact of the matter is they, their position in the constructors was locked in at this point. It wasn't going to change anything in that. Um, but what he says is that the facts as they stand at the moment is that they were excluded for breaking a, a, a regulation. Now, he says the three pieces of evidence that prove that Williams did not break the rules or at least intentionally break the rules. He said one of them is the infrared sensors that they have fitted in looking at the rear tires. As soon as the blankets were removed and the car started at its formation lap, they get readings from those sensors. He says that if the, if the tire had been at 137 degrees, there is no way it would have gotten to the 104 degrees that they got off their sensors. If um, The second bit of evidence is that the temperature and pressure are connected, which we talked about this. Mm-hmm. He said they had eight data points, and the mean PSI was 22.2, and the standard deviation was 0.5. That data includes the percentage on the grid, so we are happy that the pressure in that tire, once we had blooded out, was about where we expected it to be. If it had been at 137 degrees, the pressures would have been 24.1 PSI, which would have been way out of any standard deviation from the mean. So math people, that makes sense to you. Yes. (laughs) So he says, the third piece of evidence is based on an experiment Williams performed after the incident, which measured the temperature underneath the blanket. Um, I lost my spot here. And then when the tire was exposed. He said, when we took a reading from under the blankets, we saw 135 degrees, and when we opened it up, it turned to 110 degrees. Okay. So he says that based on that experiment, they weren't doing any kind of monkey business, anything like that. They were doing what they were supposed to. It, it was fine. I don't know. Okay. But that's what he says. Well, I'm sure Pat Simmons is completely right. <laughs> so one of the other issues, still with the tires and Williams, Williams has had some tire nut issues. We've seen it. Don't even go there. (laughs) 12-year-old. Working with a 12-year-old here. So, what we have... stop! (laughs) Anyway. Doesn't that cause aerodynamic drag? You know, them hanging down below the car? They're, They're tire nuts, not truck nuts. Oh, big difference here but ju- just for that after this we'll, t- we'll talk about Toto Wolf and his issues with stroking bottoms anyway coming soon <laughs> stay tuned anyway so no, this was the shocking episode of the bloke and the bird yes we have seen a few times um, in a this season where Williams has run into issues getting tires off of a car in a pit stop, it's been a tire nut issue. They believe they have finally sorted it out and they have figured out what the problem is. However, even though this is the last race of the season and nothing is at stake, they have decided that they are not going to risk it and they are not going to put the the fix in place for this race. If nothing is at risk, why would you not? I, I don't understand that thought there. I mean, their place in the constructors is, is secure. Wait a minute. 
Botas is still battling with Kimmy. Well, that's true. He is. He. It is a one point difference between Valtteri and Kimmy. I mean, so maybe could there's put that. Put it on Massa's car. I don't know if Massa's in a battle for a place. But I mean, I grant if that goes horribly wrong, you could be risking something with Botas and Kimmy. So I could understand that. But wouldn't you want to try it? That would be my thought. But are they participating in tire testing? I mean, could they not throw the new— Well, they have tested this. That's why they, they believe it's a fix and it'll work. It has been tested. They just don't want to deploy it in a race situation yet. Maybe it's because Bob, the— The builder? What? No. <laughs> Bob, the uh, nut guy? Okay. I don't know. Every term that came to mind was kind of dirty, so I was trying. <laughs> um. Bob the nut guy, maybe he hasn't been trained on the fix yet. Well, in terms of yeah, yes, engineering wise, this is probably fairly complicated. But the guy who guys who are changing the tires, given what this is, this can't be very complicated. I mean, you're still talking and, and the reason why it can't be complicated for them is they still need to complete a pit stop in two and a half to three seconds. So if it's super complicated, you're going to make it harder to do that. Well, I can't imagine that it's complicated, but maybe it's a anti-clockwise turn versus a clockwise turn. But even still, you plug I the just gun used in. The you word pre- anti-clockwise. You and did. You didn't. But blink. but even still, it's a matter of you plug the gun in, you push the button, the nut comes off. Plug the gun in, push the button, nut goes back in. Maybe it's a trigger versus a button. You never know what Bob needs for his training. Bob might need job aids. Okay, whatever. Maybe he didn't come to the meeting. I'm just giving you options. (laughs) Anything to distract me from the fact that Formula One cars have nuts. All right, so Graham Loudon. (laughs) How is my buddy Graham? (laughs) Well, he has come out and say, he is actually adamant that he has no regrets about opting to resign from Manor after six years with the team. Okay. He says that this is the right move. So obviously there has been a very, very big falling out between him and team ownership. He won't say what it is or why, but he insists that this was the right call and hopes that sometime in the future he would like to come back to Formula One. So we hope to see him back. I think he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah. I will say this, that he's had a whole lot more airtime as Manor Marusha than he ever got as Marusha. Absolutely. As they've been going through this transition. So, I mean, I think that bodes well for Marusha Manor as a team. And as they're changing priorities and things like that, I think that's probably part of it. But I think that we've gotten to know Graham a little bit more than we ever did from such a backmarker team. Definitely. We, we saw, well, we learned more about the team this year. Yes. Just in general, because of the fact that the media was willing to talk to them. And wanted to. Yeah. Not just willing to, but wanted to. There was stuff to talk about. So, looping back to Williams again. Rob Smedley, who is the performance chief over at Williams, has come out and he has said something that is... I think it is a truth. He he urges Formula One to decide if it is a sport or entertainment. 
Wow, that's um very deep for them. But but it's the truth. I mean, yeah. you you hear a lot of, of Bernie and his concerns about the show and all the things that he wants to do to Im- improve the show. But which is it? Is this WWE on four wheels, or is this a true sport? Is it the pinnacle of motor racing? Yeah. I mean, that's the reality. It, and, I mean, how succinct for someone to actually pull it down and and uh, declare that this is, the, this is the conundrum. Because everything that Bernie wants to do is about manipulating the show. Mm-hmm. But you don't get to talk out of both sides of your mouth. If you want to manipulate the show, then it's no longer the sport. Well, the truth is, though, and and, and this is something that that Bernie and Formula One in general needs to remember, is that if you let it be a sport and you build the rules so that it is sporting, you get some races like we have now that are just absolutely incredible that people will talk about for decades, and then you get other ones like we have now that people will forget three days after it happened. Now, yes, it's unlike, say, Major League Baseball or the NBA basketball or hockey or, or, or one of those sports that have these really long seasons with multiple games every week. You don't have as many races to offer every year, so you've got to work harder at it. But still, treat it the way it needs to be. You know, Smedley comes out and he says, you got to ask yourself, do we entertain people? And, and there the answer is yes. They do put on some fantastic shows. He believes that fundamentally what Formula One has is a very good package and a really good platform for the fan base and the markets that they serve. But they need to keep making better. And he admits he's a big football fan and sometimes he watches it and he's bored stiff. It's not very exciting at all and doesn't really entertain me. But he loves football at the end of the game, and sometimes Formula One is just like that. Sometimes they put on absolutely stunning races that are just naturally fantastic to watch, and sometimes they're not. It happens. That's a sport. Let it be a sport, and don't try and artificially contrive to make it incredible every single race. Well, I totally agree. Um, one of the theories about mm-hmm. why this constantly, this battle keeps coming up is not just that Formula One hasn't figured out, are they a sport or are they entertainment, but also that, um, there's a ongoing murmuring, mm-hmm. I would give it, that Jean Todd and Bernie Eccleston don't carry the clout that they used to carry and that that has been frustrating to them. It is. And overall, if you look at the sport as a whole, there are things that don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, a few? A few. Just a few. Just a few. Um, Christian Horner just pointed out here recently that over half the teams are insolvent. Yes. And, you know, that goes on to, to my next story here that Sauber and Manor have now also put out applications uh, requesting early payments of their prize fund, joining, um, joining Force India, who did it last month. And it sounds like that was approved. But, you know, it's more than just that. It, it's some of these st- – and, and I get that there's a piece of safety. To go back to the tire thing, 
really bugs me, this whole thing that we've got to jump through hoops of, well, take the tire, the, the, the temperature of the tire, and, and how does that confirm to the pressure? Because if your pressure is too low, then, then Pirelli gets upset because you run a, a greater risk of a blowout, which not only does that impact your race, but now Pirelli's upset because it means the driver's going to go stand up in front of the cameras and slag Pirelli. We shouldn't be making, as much as there's a safety concern there, we shouldn't be making rules up to protect the reputation of a participant in the sport. And that's kind of how I view the tire pressure rules. Why not turn around and just say, look, Pirelli's going to give you a recommended parameter for your tires. Tire pressure, temperatures, minimum and maximum number of laps. These are recommendations. That is the preferred way that Pirelli, and, and not just that, but even like we saw after Silverstone, what, in 2013 with all the blowouts, that you shouldn't be swapping tires around and, and, and all of the, these various pieces of how to use these components. If you decide to operate the tire in a manner outside of Pirelli's recommendations, that's on your team. If it works out, fantastic, you're the hero. If it doesn't work out and you suffer a catastrophic blowout, that's on you. Shut up. <laughs> Admit your mistake. Admit that you went and took a risk and it failed, and don't blame Pirelli for it. Same thing if it, you know you start blowing up gearboxes or whatever. That's on you for operating outside of the normal parameters. Accept it. Go out on the cameras when people question you and say, we took a risk. It was our fault. The issue. Okay. I 100% agree with you. Okay. I know. We are all shocked. <laughs> I 100% agree with you that Pirelli should come out and say, these are our recommendations. You At this pressure, at this temperature, you can get this many laps on mm -hmm. this track on those tires. Do it this way, and this is what you'll get. Mm -hmm. That is our recommendation. Deviation from that recommendation comes with its own set of risks. Accept and move on. I love the idea. The problem mm -hmm. is that at 200 and something miles per hour, a blowout of a back tire will be catastrophic. And can yeah. be catastrophic. Yeah. And unfortunately, it bleeds into the safety risk. And it's one thing to say, you take a risk and it's your risk. And if you blow the tire and you run out of tires because you're running shorter stints than you should be running, that's on you. When you blow out a tire and you cross the track and you hit three other cars and you flip one upside down and somebody lands on their helmet, that's not on them anymore. But, but then you get penalized for that. And somebody gets dead. Yes and no. The, again, that is the team's choice. They were given the I, – I go back to – they were given the guidelines. And if if the result of that is somebody dies and it ruins the team because of the fact that, it, you know, the FIA comes out and said that was negligent on your part. 
because Pirelli turned around and said, you need to be running that tire at 22 pounds per square inch, and you ran it at three because you'd get better <laughs> pressure. That's negligent on your part. You were told what the risks are. You knew what the risks are, and you took it anyway. You put your drivers and you put, the, put all the other drivers at risk as well. And then come other sanctions on top of that, whether that's financial, whether that's exclusion, whether that's all the other pieces, but that's on the team. And it then prevents the drivers from standing up or the teams from standing up and, and telling a major manufacturer or partner of the team that their products are crap because the team ran them in a manner that they shouldn't have run them in the first place. And that's why we have these these rules and these that, well— that, that we need to take all these pressures because the Pirelli turns around and, and sets out parameters and the teams decide that, well, you know, we're going to run it anyway because we don't feel like running it the way Pirelli wants. And then when they have a blowout and they have an issue, they blame Pirelli and it's not Pirelli's fault. Well, I agree with you that if you operate your machinery outside manufacturer specifications, it's on you. Mm-hmm. But when you risk 19 other drivers... When you risk millions of pounds, there are going to be bigger rules surrounding it. And unfortunately, we don't have a good balance between the need for the safety rules. The, the rule that says you can be within 10% of the Pirelli recommendation because that's acceptable risk. Let's go back to Nikki Lauda's thing. I am willing mm-hmm. to accept 20% risk, but I'm not willing to accept 21 So... You run 10% plus or minus Pirelli's recommendations. But if you run a 22 PSI recommendation recommended wheel at 3 PSI, that that is inherently a loaded gun. It is. And, and, And that's where you have to allow both the teams and the drivers sense of self preservation. To monitor and govern and regulate and say, yes, this is really stupid. I'm not getting into a car that's a ticking time bomb because I can't go more than two laps before the tire blows up. Except that what makes the Hunt Lauda story so compelling Mm -hmm. is that Lauda was a lone voice. Yeah. He was unique in the Playboy lifestyle of the racers. He is different. But back, but but and, the drivers then were totally different. Yes, in a lot of ways they are, but in everything that you hear, and you hear it from DC every single week, mm-hmm. race drivers are race drivers, and they want to go racing, and there is a level of invincibility, much like adolescent invincibility, where they don't really believe anything's going to happen to them. To them, yes and no. Because if it was this full level of invincibility, then we wouldn't have the clip that I could pull up from Spa of Sebastian Vettel screaming and yelling over the tires. And we wouldn't have had the clips from 2012 after Silverstone of all the drivers screaming and yelling about how the tires exploding were unacceptable. They, They are not going to let the teams knowingly put themselves in that kind of a position. These drivers won't do that. But what I hear when I hear Vettel stomping his little foot and having his Tyler temper tantrum over the tires is I have a socially acceptable reason to be angry over the fact that 
I drove over the curbs consistently. I destroyed the no, tires. No, he said he didn't do it. Do he I... didn't. He says he didn't, except every videotape yeah. shows him driving over it every single time. Oh, I, I don't argue that, but I, I don't think that was the excuse. And, and here, let, let's... No, it's not his public excuse. It's the toddler mentality. Let, let, let's let's listen to the comment from, from Seb. Sebastian, were Ferrari being a little bit too greedy in the end, do you think? No. So you were happy with the decision and you wanted to stay out? You could have got to the end, you felt? Well, how many laps I was missing, not many, and things like that are not allowed to happen, full stop. If it happens 200 meters earlier, I'm not standing here now. I'm with 300 stuck in a rush, so I don't know what else needs to happen. Uh, yeah. So in that case, so you're obviously upset that the, the tire went in that way, but you'd run it for 27. What is upsetting? Upsetting is that one thing is the result. You know, this is racing for sure. You know, we we deserve to finish on the podium. But the other thing, as I said, if this happens earlier, then you know, I don't. I think it's a sort of theme that keeps going around. Nobody's mentioning, but it's unacceptable. You were one of the drivers who stated your concerns to Charlie Whiting on Friday in the drivers' briefing. Was that taken seriously? Well, I think it was, but what's the answer? Same as uh, every time. Yeah, well, there was a cut, debris, uh, the, 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 maybe something wrong with the bodywork, the driver went wide. If Nico tells us that he didn't go off the track, he didn't go off the track. I mean, why should he lie to us? It's, uh, same with me, I didn't go off the track. It's just out of the blue, the tire explodes. And as I said, as I said if this happens earlier, then... But you drivers must be the ones in the power seat. So what do you do now before Monza? Oh, I think we need to speak to each other. Uh, it's probably not as bad as it was in Silverstone some years ago, but it's not acceptable. Thank you. Okay. This is the two-year-old that's playing with the, the plate in the kitchen, and Mom keeps saying, put the plate down. Put the plate down. You're going to drop it. You're going to drop it. And suddenly, plate breaks, and the two-year-old looks at you and says, I don't know what happened. <coughs> but, again, I don't think that the drivers are going to turn around and knowingly put up with a team that deliberately runs the tires so low that, that the safety margin is that low, that they're at that much risk. Okay, I think that the gross overstatement of the 3 PSI to the 22 PSI is probably a red herring. I will grant that. But here's who, here's the way I see mm -hmm. that playing out. Hey, Seb, I can get you 14 more horsepower and two less laps on those on those tires if we drop that PSI down to 21. But the problem is, the inherent problem, is that if you go over a curb... You're going to risk the inside sidewall. And I can hear the engineer saying that. If we do this, you can't go over the curb. Mm -hmm. And you just heard him say, I didn't go over the curb. And yet we know from footage, he hit that curb every single lap. And, and in that case, do you not think that if he, he turned around, clipped the curb every single lap, blew up the tire... And then under the rules of you can't go blaming Pirelli for running outside the standards that the team's not going to run to go. We gave him the choice. 
We told him what the risks are. We told him that if he goes over the curbs, he runs a greater risk of blowing out the tires. He did it anyway. Here's the video. You know, and Pirelli did exactly that when they said, he says he didn't go over the curbs, but here, look, uh, he went Pirelli, over the curbs. I don't think, no, Pirelli actually didn't. Everybody in the media said, liar, 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 pants on fire. But Pirelli you know, did not do that. In a lot Pirelli, of ways, you've got to give Pirelli credit for they're the one group that's not slinging mud. Actually, And me, they could. Let me rephrase that. Pirelli didn't come out in public <laughs> and say, liar, liar, pants on fire. Because we do know that Paul Hembry and Bernie Eccleston and Seb and Lewis and Alonzo did have a private meeting. And it's possible that in that private meeting, Pirelli said, liar, liar, pants on fire. But they didn't do it in public. Granted. <laughs> Good for them. So, shall we move on? If you wish. Speaking of control. We were speaking of control? We were. Oh, okay. You know, Jean Todd and Bernie, they, they are very upset that they feel that they are losing control to Mercedes and to Ferrari. In fact, I read an article this week mm -hmm. that said that the best contest of the year was not on the track. It was, in fact, between Mercedes and Ferrari versus Jean Todd and Bernie. Sadly, we don't get to see more of that. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would look like? Yeah. That could be a double dobby. Could have you, a double you, points, <laughs> a double points uh, showdown, Mercedes Ferrari. So, part of the the battle of control, or I guess in response to their perceived lack of control, is is the best way to put it. You know, two three weeks ago, Jean Todd and, and Bernie came out with their budget engine proposal. And there were rumors that there were actually two or three companies that were either tendered proposals or were ready to go because they had engines that were going to meet the requirements. However, before it could go forward, it had to go in front of the F1 commission who said, yeah, this is a really stupid idea. We're not doing this. <laughs> now, Which, who makes up the F1 commission? Um. Representatives of the teams, the engine builders, circuits, and sponsors, as well as Jean Todd and Bernie Eccleston. Okay. So it, it was— It's more than just the strategy group. Right. Now, I believe this was also one of the, the groups that um, approved double points last year. So, you know, take their wisdom with a grain <laughs> of salt. But They're not always the brightest bulbs on the Christmas tree. Yeah. So— they, they came out, they issued a statement following their meeting on Tuesday saying that the parties involved have agreed, have agreed on a course of action to address several key areas relating to power supply in F1. Now, what these are is they are, there is now a guarantee to, of supply to teams. So, in theory, in the future, Red Bull and Toro Rosso should not be in a stupid situation that they're in right now. Um, the need to reduce the engine's cost, simplification of the specification, and improved noise. Really? Yeah. So we'll see how this happens. Actually, the FIA said, I thought it was three, they, the FIA said they received four um, credible 
statements of interest for the tender, but that is now out the window. We will be staying with what we have and staying tuned to find out exactly how this is going to shake out for its belief 2017. Now, Toto Wolf has come out talking about the engines. Mm -hmm. And again, yet again, as we have noted, when you have a rules change like an engine change, there's often a disparity between those who got it right at the beginning and those who didn't. And he said, with Ferrari coming up and move making such a great leap this year, mm -hmm. it will not be unfeasible, infeasible. It will not be unreasonable that the fields start leveling out, and that it become a, a you know a bigger battle for littler gains. I guess. You know, speaking of Ferrari's jump. Yes. Our focus when it comes to performance and, and how the teams have, have been doing and their improvements has been, oh, they must have improved the engine, they improved the chassis, you know, these big technical things that, that they have done. But Shell, who supplies fuel to Ferrari, says that Ferrari has gained half a second through fuel alone in 2015. Really? Now, I, I they don't explain how this works um you know what what they've done and, and how they move molecules or whatever and, and what's so special about the fuel so i don't know that hope maybe there's a chemist who's listening <laughs> but what they have said is that they undertook an aggressive development program with ferrari this year and culminated in five new fuel formulations over the year hmm. now what it is and how i don't know but Shell says that their fuel is making a performance difference and making the car go faster. Now, is that a fuel that I could get at my, my local Shell station? Probably not. I mean, could I get some go-faster juice in my car? Probably not. But they say that between the fuel and the oils, they got a 25% gain in in the overall performance of the power unit. Well, we all know that if you're using the right fuel for your car, it gets better performance. You get better gas mileage, the car yeah. runs better, all of those things. So, I mean, I don't think that that's unfathomable. I think that it's important to realize that the car is a whole living beast. And we talk, we get bogged down in talking about a single component, whether it's an engine or a gearbox or a suspension or a this or a that. And we forget that one little change in one little part of the car can really affect the whole beast. Yeah. Now, what Shell says is that when the rules opened up to allow for in-season power unit development, that allowed for Shell to remap and re-optimize the fuels at every change of engine architecture developed by Ferrari through the season. Um, from a technical standpoint, he well, excuse me, he said, as an engine is developing, it is usually changing with regards to its requirement for fuels and oils. They've improved the way they work with Ferrari, and the aim is to continue with their aggressive development program. Cool. So, yeah, no real idea of what they did but apparently so they've done something. they are custom brewing the fuel and oil for that specific engine iteration 
essentially. Essentially, that's what they that's what they just said that they are doing. Now, the the other thing here is there are rules regarding the fuel and how it works. We know this if you go back in time to the Senna years. And when Senna was driving for McLaren, there was one race that McLaren was um, excluded due to some kind of violation regarding the fuel hmm. and what they used. Yeah. Alrighty. So one of the stories that have come forward this week, and you know, there's been a lot of talk over Haas and, and their efforts to join the grid next year and the extremely close partnership that they have with Ferrari. Oh yeah. Combined with the fact that you know the the rules state that team at currently competing teams in the sport only get about 24 hours of wind tunnel divest wind tunnel development time a week. However, if you're a team that has not yet made it to the grid and you're doing your development efforts to join the sport, those requirements don't apply. So as a result, Haas gets unlimited wind tunnel testing, and there has been a lot of concern regarding the, um, the close partnership between Haas and Ferrari and the possibility that Ferrari could be taking advantage of Haas's development efforts to aid their own development efforts and get around the testing limits. Well, Mercedes this week fired, filed an, a written appeal to the FIA accusing some teams, they did not call out Ferrari and Haas in particular, but some teams of possibly using these loopholes to get around the, te the testing limits. What the FIA did, which I think actually is kind of a weenie move, is... Oh, wait. Hold on. Let me have the shock. The FIA pulled a weenie move. <laughs> hmm. Okay. I'm over it now. Instead of making a decision on their own, they decided that, no, we'll pass this down to the race stewards at this week's race to investigate and make that call. The race stewards? Yeah. Wait, how would they know? So this is a season-long development effort and a season-impacting decision. So we're going to turn this over to the stewards at one race. Hey, you check this out and make the call. How does this make any sense? How would they know? Well, I, I'm assuming they took all the, the, the various collected evidence and said, you guys decide. Yeah, fi figure this one out. I don't. It, you'd be better served to have Charlie himself make the call. So what has been done? is that um, the stewards in Abu, Abu Dhabi, which were spearheaded by former F1 driver and BRDC, British Racing Driver, British Race Drivers Club, uh, the president, Derek Warwick, steps have been taken to ensure regulations in the future cannot be abused. Basically, they have come out and they have said that there can be no communication, in this kind of a situation, there can be no communications between the for lack of a better term, the development team, the team that is not yet hit the grid, and the team that they are partnered with. There can be absolutely no communications as those developments are going on regarding those development lines. 
In addition, anybody who is involved in aero development on either team, the say the parent team, which we'll, we'll refer to Ferrari as, the parent team or the development team, if somebody works in aero development on one of those teams, there needs to be a safety buffer before they can leave one team and join any other team on the grid or potential team joining the grid. It's the, the garden leave thing. So if somebody was working aero development at Ferrari, they have to be um, – there has to be a gap of I believe it's like 10 to 12 months before they can join another team. So that way all of those aero development efforts that were done by their previous team could not be carried over. Okay. So that's that. That's how they're getting around it. Is there's this gardening leave gap for personnel who move back and forth, and there can be no correspondence between the teams regarding their aero development efforts. Okay. Let me just propose a scenario that may or may not be the way you get around these proposals. You know that Haas and Ferrari share a wind tunnel, right? Because so, Haas is using Ferrari's wind tunnel. So, so you're saying that when the Haas guys finish, they don't log off the computer, they just walk out? I'm not even saying that. I'm saying, you know, Bob, Bob is, Bob's a screw up. Just so you know, Bob is a very big screw up at Haas. And he keeps a notebook. And he just happens to leave his notebook behind because he's a bit of a slob and doesn't know you know in the mess with all the coffee cups and you know food bits he's left his notebook behind or you know it's not been that uncommon that somebody might find plans or something in the bin out behind the uh well i mean that's the thing is this is the scenario that has happened yes and it was something like a billion-dollar fine that McLaren got for this. And excluded from the season. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see a huge benefit because if you get caught— Well, if you get caught, you're going to The penalties to get... are massive. And, yeah, it becomes a risk versus gain piece. But, but okay. But wait. Let's just— Level set, yes, a billion dollar fine excluded from the season. McLaren's still in the sport, mm-hmm. right? They are. I mean, but- just short of being told that they had to take a Honda engine that was so substandard that their world champion drivers can't get out of Q one as a penalty for it. I mean, really? But it it also depends on who gets hit with that penalty. In this case, there was clear wrongdoing on McLaren's part, and McLaren had the money that they could absorb that hit. Haas probably doesn't have that money. Most of the teams on the grid don't have the cash to handle that, especially the customer teams. And if a customer team got nailed with that, it would probably wipe them out. Except for the fact that the team that has the most to gain from this, this is the old Watergate thing, follow the money. It's who's got the most to gain. In-season wind tunnel increase of time is going to affect and gain Ferrari parent team far more than it will affect the development of Haas 
because they're not on the grid. Basically, what you're saying is that you could have access to information that could affect this season because of this. And all they are doing is erecting what is essentially what is called a Chinese wall. Yes. Which I believe is made of paper normally. Well, there's the Great Wall, which is not, and that's the the inspiration. So, I'm just saying, that's what they have put forward. So the hope is this will prevent the arms race by, as Toto puts it, seeing how many uh, puppet companies you can set up in place to speed up your your development. You know what I find interesting? Is that I believe it is Mercedes that is talking about having the next puppet company. Well, and and Toto has said that, you know, if this is allowed, absolutely they're going to do the same thing. So. Honestly, I think you'd be foolish not to set up a, a, a junior team because, yes, while it may not be publicly allowed, I still think that you easily have the scenario of Bob leaving his notebook behind or not logging off the computer. Or even if it is nothing more than the guy that runs the wind tunnel being the same guy, you're going to get advantages. And and maybe some of that is also the... Teams shouldn't be used, especially customer teams, shouldn't be using the same wind tunnel as the parent team to help ease that a bit. That would be probably a a fair sporting way of handling Yeah. But then the question is how many wind tunnels are out there that can do F1 testing? And I don't know. See, I vote that they have one. Everybody uses the same wind tunnel? Mm Mm-hmm. Then you run into issues of deconfliction and that. Oh, I understand that it's got its own set of issues. But if everybody used the same wind tunnel, you could control the time that they have, the staff that's in place, the the transfer of information that wouldn't happen because some other outside party, you know, wind tunnel 101, would be in charge of those things. I think that that would have a greater thing maybe it's a matter of don't own you can't own your own wind tunnel you have to use a third party wind tunnel which of course will get into the costing issues but there is some thing about having to take it outside but but if those wind tunnels were owned and operated by the fia under fia auspices as opposed to the teams and the manufacturers owning them, and they paid for wind tunnel time, and everybody paid the same price, that would be a different story. I think that that would have greater oversight over the fact that we're trusting Ferrari to keep and erect that Chinese wall. And we all know that that probably did not exist between Red Bull and Toro Rosso. Again, there, there's questions about that. We, we do know that the design teams are different. Mm-hmm. And somehow Red Bull has done enough to cover that. I don't know how. Um, but Adrian Newey hasn't been designing Toro Rosso's for a long time. Anyway, let's move on to some Ron speak. Okay. Um, 
Ron was at the race in Abu Dhabi or at the event in Abu Dhabi because we haven't seen a race yet. But in the first time since Japan, he is speaking to the press again. This time answering for the reports that he vetoed Honda supplying engines to Red Bull. So we have his statement here. You have to try and do your best to, to translate here. Um, he says, We sat with Honda and absolutely analyzed where we were and whether it would enhance our ability to move even faster or not, whether supplying another team like Red Bull would pressurize the system even more. Based upon the current supply structure, where we are with the engine, the time before the first Grand Prix, it was very, very clear it was not physically possible to push the suppliers up the supply chain to increase production because we didn't know what we wanted them to make. Our engine program will be enhanced next year because we want to take the maximum amount of time to make parts. How many parts you make, bearing in mind there is a lot more freedom now, the more engines you have to make, the more your supply chain gets stressed. Having increased the budget into Formula One, Honda could see no economic logic at this stage to embrace another team. But someone had to take a clear decision, and so I took one, and therefore took the understandable flack. It was fully supported by Honda that we, did, that we didn't have the capacity to engage another team, but someone had to stand up and say, this is not going to happen. This wasn't me countering a desire of Honda. This was me taking responsibility for a decision which goes with the job. To which I say, bull. I don't even think I understood that circular logic. Well, that's Ron speak for you. But basically, in a nutshell, he's saying that as the McLaren team owner, and because he's not the principal anymore, I don't know what his title is, but as the head of McLaren, he looked at Honda's capability to produce additional engine parts to supply another team and said, you know what? You guys can't do it. Instead of Honda saying, hey, we can't produce enough engines to supply another team. Now, granted, they're on what? Engine number 12 this season. So I could see that, you know, if there was another team, they're sucking each other's spares up. But still, (laughs) He's saying that he looked at Honda's capability to adequately supply them with, and the only way I could see this making sense is if he's working under the assumption that next year they're going to need another 12 friggin' engines. Well, as a matter of fact. They're going to need another 12 friggin' engines. (laughs) As a matter of fact, yet another article that I read this week (laughs) says that, hey, guess what? McLaren's not going to be that competitive in 2016 either. Shocking. Now, I didn't know this about Ron. Mm-hmm. Do you know that he has he has determined, this is how much of a control freak Ron Dennis is, mm-hmm. that 21 degrees Celsius is the ideal temperature. For what? His entire house and all of the offices at Woking. Okay. And what is 21 degrees Celsius for those of us who don't speak metric? I have no idea. See, I at least looked that up for the statistic that I have later on. (laughs) I have that translation available. You could have done the same. Um, Anyway, um, I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I don't even know what that applies to anything. I don't either, but it was part of the article I read, which made it, I found, randomly interesting. Anyway, here's the thing. Um. It is discovered, and I know this is going to shock you, so buckle up. 
Mm-hmm. It has been discovered that McLaren's issues this year, which, by the way, worst season since 1980 for McLaren. Ouch. Um, that cannot be all nailed on Honda's woeful power unit. Absolutely. There are other problems. And so um, it's more than just the engine, guys. So even if they were to fix the engine for 2016. But you can't you can't address one without the other. Right. But and yeah. even if they fixed the engine 100%, it's still a failure. And, you know, we've heard the drivers say, many, and we've got the quotes many times, of Jensen and Fernando saying the car, the, the chassis is working. We point to go where, where we want, and it's doing what we expect it to do. It's not getting there quickly because the engine sucks. So, you know, I, I don't want to turn around and say there, there's other. We don't know. At least at this speed, it seems to be doing what the drivers want. Maybe if it goes faster, that's a different story. But the drivers have said multiple times that they think the chassis is actually kind of solid. 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So other news from Ron caused a little bit of controversy. So when Ron was asked whether or not um, Fernando would be uh, coming back next year, which it seems like an odd question that he would even be asked this, um, he came out out of the blue and said, I have an open mind to anything. And some of the ideas have involved these, those sorts of considerations. Yes, sabbatical years, etc. He's the one who threw out, essentially, that he cannot confirm whether or not Fernando will be driving with the team next year, which seems awfully odd. And he set th- this obviously set some tom- tongues wagging. So BBC post race after or, or post qualifier reached out to Fernando and asked Fernando for his input. So this is what Fernando had to say. Ron Dennis has been briefing the media and he actually gave a quote saying that he didn't know whether you would be racing at McLaren next year, that some discussions are taking place and a, a sabbatical has been discussed. What can you tell us? Will you be at McLaren on the grid? Uh, me, I will be. I will be. But uh, I've been answering the same question uh, to all your colleagues. And uh, when when Ron says something, I think you have a perfect opportunity to ask him uh, to to clarify some some of his quotes. You know, because I don't know what his intention behind or what uh, he means uh, with some of the things. But uh, uh, of course, we all want to improve, and uh, we all want to put the car on uh, on winter testing and see how competitive we are. And uh, we are hoping for the best. Yes, thank you. So that sounds pretty definitive. Right. 90 minutes later. 90 minutes. An hour 90 and a half. minutes later, he's at the written media session and asked again, would he absolutely rule out a sabbatical? His reply changed. You can never say 100% anything. My intention is to race, and I think I will race. We'll see how it goes next year, but it's not in my plans to race. As to whether Alonzo had ever discussed with Dennis the idea of a year out, again, there was no overwhelmingly dismissive answer. As he said, I've discussed many ideas, crazy ideas, before then expressing positivity about progress. Hmm. 
but Alonzo's done this before. I was going to say, this isn't a weird thing for Alonzo. He's taken sabbaticals before. Well, it not the sabbatical. I don't think he's taken sabbatical. It was Kimmy who took a sabbatical. But it, it's more the Alonzo who says one thing or doesn't unequivocally rule out something and turns around and does what everybody thought he was going to do. Like, oh, I'm going to stay with Ferrari until the end of my career, and three months later signs with McLaren. Mm. So, yeah, really odd. So this weekend is Abu Dhabi. Yes. And before we get into our stats, we have some some stuff that that rolled out previous to, to the race happening. The first of which is Bernie Eccleston stepped in to help Lotus guarantee its place at the race mm-hmm. because apparently they could not pay the bills to get their gear and everything over to the track. Bernie paid the overdue amount so that they could get there and start unpacking. Two days late. So this then becomes the question of what is going on with Renault? Because there was a lot of talk that there would be an announcement regarding this deal this week. And we haven't heard anything. Well, the BBC is reporting that there are now doubts over this deal going through over the fact that Renault has apparently had a falling out with Bernie regarding the prize money payouts. The guess is, because Renault believes that they should get, if, if they come in and stay in, they should get the same historic status, historic constructor status, as um, Williams gets, as Ferrari gets, and as McLaren gets, because they have been around the sport in some form or another for 20-plus years. Okay. It doesn't sound like Bernie is necessarily in agreement with that or does not want to give Renault the rates that they want to get. It's unclear as to what the issue is. We do know that there are, have been continuing meetings between uh, Bernie and the folks over at Renault uh, this weekend. But what's going on and how and why, we don't have any idea. What we have heard is that from a Renault Lotus perspective, the deal is done. This is strictly a Renault-Bernie negotiation. And Bernie apparently has the power, if he does not come to terms, to scuttle the entire thing. Conspiracy theory. Okay. Do you think that Bernie may be harboring a, a bit of an anger over the Red Bull Renault relationship. Here's my theory. Okay. Red Bull and Renault have had a tumultuous year at best. Mm-hmm. Renault, so Red Bull tries to pack up their toys and go home. Now they're left without an engine. Renault is looking to buy a team. Pro- in theory, looking to best Red Bull at its own game, basically. And my theory is that in somebody's mind, we're going to take Lotus and make them better than Red Bull using a Renault engine and show up all the things that Horner said. And that's what's going on in my mind. 
And so Bernie has this power because he's in a love affair with Red Bull. He has the power to scuttle this whole deal. So I have two theories as to the branches of the road this is going to take. One, that Bernie is using this portion of the negotiations as leverage to ensure Red Bull has the engine that they need for next year. Or two, to discount the payments towards Renault as payback for the fact they gave Red Bull a substandard engine in Bernie's mind for this year. Well, let's let's look at this whole Red Bull engine thing because I've got I've got some info on this. For starters, Red Bull has come out and they've announced that they are going back to the older spec engine, um, the one that they had had pre Brazil, because their opinion was. The Brazil, the upgraded Brazil engine, well, it, it sucked. Um, <laughs> however, the, the theory is what's going on with Red Bull and their engine, and I got to say, it, at this point, the fact that Red Bull has not come out and made an announcement is ridiculous. Especially since the word is, this is actually settled now. They've got a plan and they know what they're doing and they're moving forward with that plan. They just haven't announced it yet. Moving beyond that, though. The rumor is, the talk is, yes, this is going to be an unbranded Renault engine. However, Renault will be providing, as part of this engine package, development support to Red Bull. The talk is, is that the direction that Renault went with this engine and what they developed and what they upgraded and what they felt was going to improve performance is not what Red Bull wanted. They wanted the engine development to go in a different direction. But Renault, being the engine supplier, went their way. So the thought is, is that for 2017 and for that engine and with the development support, this fork of the engine path will go the way Red Bull wants it to go. With Renault running, if this deal gets signed with Lotus, the development going the way they want. That's the theory. Okay. So I I don't know how well that plays into your conspiracy theory. I still think that there is something about the unique bedfellows that Bernie and Red Bull are playing into the Renault deal. I think they are playing fast and loose with the terms based on the love affair that Bernie has with Red Bull. I think it depends on how much money Red or Renault is looking to bring in. I, I, I mean, I mean, let's face it. Given the opportunity, Bernie will not leave money on the table, even if he doesn't uh, quite you know, remember the difference between million and billion, he will not leave money on the table. Mm -hmm. And that could be some of what this is. I don't know. It could be, but I... I don't know. So I think he's making Renault pay. I just, I I can't shake that. I think he's trying to. Mm -hmm. Or at least to, to deny them historic status. Right. So, you know, many race weekends, there's 
all the the side card events and, and other things to fill up the weekend. Mm-hmm. This weekend was supposed to be not just the season finale for Formula One, but the season finale for GP2. Now, much like Formula One, their season, their their drivers and constructors championships are completely nailed down. There there were weren't going to be any changes in that. Um, Stoffel Van Dorn ran away with the championship with 341.5 points. Wow. His closest competitor was Alexander Rossi with 181.5 points. Wow. I mean, blew them away. Now, granted, I think Alexander Rossi may have missed a few races to go race in F1, where Van Dorn didn't have that issue. I don't think so. I think that... Rossi had to continue to race all the races of GP2, but the ones that didn't have a conflicting weekend were the ones he was racing for Manor. Yeah, I, I don't know how that worked. But the reason why I call this into attention is because prior to the race today was supposed to be that finale. That finale made it two turns. Two. Two turns. There was a massive wreck um, at turn two where uh, Red Bull Jr. Pierre Gasly spun out and rolled back onto the track into the path of Norman Nato. Nato, with nowhere to go, clattered into the side of Gasly, sending him into the path of Nicholas Latifi, Daniel DeJong, and Sean Galil. The four drivers went headfirst into the barrier, with Galil almost going over the top. This resulted in the race being red flagged immediately as the marshals attempted to remove the four cars that were embedded in the TechBro barrier. Um, under the supervision of Charlie Whiting, Formula One race director, the cars were removed and, and repairs began to take place. However, Whiting ultimately made the decision to cancel the race after just one lap with the F1 driver's parade less than half an hour away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was no podium ceremony, there were no points awarded, there were no trophies awarded. Wow. Yeah. I had to have been a massive wreck. It, it sounds like it. How much duct tape do you think is in the tech pro barrier now? I, well, you know, that was Russia that they repaired it with duct tape. We don't know if Abu Dhabi. <laughs> this, this is the most expensive Formula One racetrack ever built. And that will bring us to stats. Okay. So, first of all, from the folks over at BBC, um, key stats and figures for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Yas Marina Circuit is 55 laps with the first race held in 2009. The circuit is a distance of 5.54 kilometers with the race lap record of 1 minute 40.279 seconds, which was set by Sebastian Vettel. Sebastian Vettel. Yeah, Sebastian Vettel in a Red Bull in 2009. Okay. So, oil brought huge wealth to Abu Dhabi when it was discovered in 1958, with about 40% of the United Arab Emirates' gross gross domestic product directly based on oil and gas. Should be a big surprise. I'm stunned. However, what should be a surprise, of the 2.65 million population in Abu Dhabi, only 500,000 are nationals. Really? Yeah. Um, the Yas Marina circuit is built on a man-made island, as is the venue for the Canadian Grand Prix, the circuit Gilles Villeneuve. 
Mm-hmm. Yaz Island, which is the name of the island, features a roller coaster that is supposedly the fastest in the world, which is, reaches speeds of 149 miles per hour. That is, of course, at the one and only Ferrari World theme park. Right. Um, 4,000 tons, and, and they love, BBC loves this one. 4,000 tons of aggregate from a Shropshire quarry was shipped to the UAE to create <laughs> the circuit surface. <laughs> they always tell you that one. BBC loves that one. Abu Dhabi is the federal capital of the United Arab Emirates and the largest of the seven emirates. The circuit costs an estimated $1.5 billion. Again, the most expensive circuit ever built. So it most wins by team, Red Bull with three, McLaren, Lotus, and Mercedes each with one. Most wins by driver, shockingly, Sebastian Vettel with three, followed by Lewis with two, with two different teams, mm-hmm. and Kimmy with one, with his famous quote, just leave me alone. I know what to do. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, yes. Um, from the folks at Williams, only one of the six Abu Dhabi Grand Prix has, has been won from pole position by Sebastian Vettel in 2010. Mm-hmm. This is probably a record which will never be beaten. Williams holds the record for the most points scored in a race after collecting 60 at Double Dobby last year. (laughs) Excuse me, 66 at Double Dobby last year. Excellent. So that that will probably never be beaten. It takes a crew of 15 abseiling window cleaners one month to clean the 5,056 glass panels that make up the exterior of the Yaz Hotel, which is the hotel that straddles the track. Actually, when it looks like a giant jelly bean. Yes. Actually, it is the Yaz Marina Viceroy Hotel. Ah. The Capitol Gate Tower in Abu Dhabi is the world's furthest leaning man-made tower. Excuse me. The, the world's furthest leaning man-made tower. The 18-degree lean is four times that of Italy's leaning tower of Pisa. And the highest temperature in the in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi are recorded in the Al Ain, where the record is fifty two point one degrees Celsius, which, as promised, <laughs> is one hundred twenty five point seven eight degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So, last race of the season, mm-hmm. BBC likes to do some season ending awards. Yes. This year, and something different, instead of their uh, commentators and hosts making the decision as to who would be getting the awards, they brought in a distinguished panel to assist them. The panel being... Your girlfriend. Christian Horner, who's not my girlfriend. (laughs) No, that's weird. (laughs) That's really weird. Um, Claire Williams. Your girlfriend. Okay. Total Wolf. (laughs) And the first thing that they were asked was for um, some memorable moments from this season. And we'll, we'll start with this one. Seeing Toto stroke Lewis's bottom was a particular highlight. Did he do that? Yeah, he did. Why did you do that? Yeah, why did you stroke Lewis's bottom? It's in Austria, it's common. We do that. <laughs> <laughs> if Helmut Marko does that to me, then he's going to have a problem. <laughs> Helmut does that to Nikki, and Nikki does it to him. No one does it to me. Quite upset. 
I'm sure you'll volunteer, <laughs> won't you, Michael? Okay, I might have been thinking that. <laughs> you went there. I only said what everyone was thinking Probably. because they all know how you feel about Claire. I'm not going to deny it. Alrighty. So there was also talk of, of the, the Red Bull folks uh, dancing in mm-hmm. Austin. Um, Christian Horner said that uh, the greatest start of the season for him happened to be that turn one at Austin and watching them mix it up. But the other one was also the Williams start. Yes. And we'll hear audio from that tomorrow. Or, or next week, rather. Next week. Yes. Okay. So uh, other than that, you know, we have run long. Okay. Well, then I will hold my story. Okay. Um, and uh, we will do a summary of the season once the season officially ends. And uh, other than that, we'll go watch the race. But, uh, you know, we want to hear your opinions on this whole tire thing and the rules. You know, obviously, we debated it pretty well. What do you guys think? Am, am I completely off the wall? Should the FIA back off and let the team self-regulate this with the, the understanding of if it goes badly, you're going to pay and you're going to pay severely for that and you don't get to beat up on your suppliers as a result of you taking this great risk? Or am I right that the teams historically have not been well and good about self-regulating? And that the risk of a life is too great to allow the teams to potentially self-regulate to the point that they would risk life and limb. So you can let us know your thoughts either on the webpage over at theblokeandabird.com or over on the Facebook page. Just uh, do a search for The Bloke and the Bird Show. Uh, other than that, remember, you can find us over in iTunes, also over on Stitcher. But uh, on that, we'll call it a show. <laughs>